my name is ajay ramasubramaniam i am the co-founder and ceo of hindsight ventures before we jump on to the 19th episode of founders 52 a very quick introduction to who we are hindsight ventures is an africa focused startup accelerator we actually prefer calling ourselves a pacer because we work with the wide spectrum of the entrepreneurship ecosystem across the continent we have been operating out of uh, dar es salaam which was the first city that we launched programs in uh, going back to december 2020 and over the past two and a half years we have operated about 14 cohorts across the continent 194 startups have been a part of our programs and we have evaluated over 5000 startups so there is some amount of work that has gone in and during this period of working with startups and the broader entrepreneurship ecosystem we realized that there are a lot of solid founders in the continent who actually can help next generation of entrepreneurs to aspire dream big and and build something which can disrupt markets disrupt economies and solve big problems this led us to to start on on founders 52 as a series because we believe that founders have inspirational journeys and these inspirational journeys is what will go on to to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs and while we started in in april 2023 it's already 19 episodes as i see and today we have with us kidus Kidus is the co-founder and and CEO of Cubic. Kidus, Kidus, welcome on board. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Um, there is a, a popular saying, proverb, whatever you can you can call it, which says that if life gives you lemon, make lemonades. As human beings, we have been polluting the earth. We have been causing a lot of plastic waste. And guess what? Kidus decided that if mankind is is giving plastic waste, why not put it to use? and that that leads us to today's topic of waste to wealth it's it's an interesting topic to to talk about but before all of that kidus if you can give us a very quick introduction to to yourself who is kidus where are you from what did you study and before your entrepreneurial journey what were you up to yes uh, again thanks so much for having me my my name is kidus asfa uh, i'm the co-founder and ceo of cubic Ajay's, as you've rightly uh, explained, what we do is we turn hard to recycle plastics into low carbon and low cost building materials. Uh, I am Ethiopian. I grew up in the capital Addis Ababa, and I moved to the U.S. for my higher education uh, and studied biomedical and electrical engineering uh, before getting scooped up into the internet and software frenzy in silicon valley and worked with google um and then later on with accenture and management consulting um there was a point where what my parents always told me about paying forward and giving back uh to the community that raised me was important and i was always seeking for that pivot to go back home And that's when I went back to get a graduate uh, degree in public policy and made the shift towards working in development uh, first with the World Bank and then later on with UNICEF. Um all this time uh, technology played a really big role in my career. Uh I was always fascinated with how many different types of complex problems you can solve with tech in different ways. So especially wh- while I was at UNICEF Uh, my work focused around innovation and and what that meant within their context was how do we use frontier technology think of drones or think of artificial intelligence how do we use that to solve some of the world's largest 
most difficult problems, such as disease outbreaks, as we've seen in 2020, or uh, being able to provide children with better education. And this took me to over 40 plus countries um, in four different continents. And I think one of the things that I always noticed was as much as there was this narrative about development being you know, a rural issue or a rural thing, uh, most of these countries that I was going to were urbanizing fast. They were a very young population. And I was actually seeing some of the problems such as health, education, uh, affordability, being even harder for lower income communities and cities. So in around 2018, decided to really shift my focus at UNICEF to focus on um, how to tackle big problems in cities, especially for children. And that led me to building one of the first circular economy projects for the organization in Cote d'Ivoire, where we turned plastic waste into bricks to make affordable schools. I think this was the aha moment for us uh, around the role that UNICEF can play, but also the role that technology such as the one that we developed could play in transforming and making the lives of low-income communities better. And after doing this for about three years, um, seeing over 300 schools stand up all over Cote d'Ivoire, I took it upon myself and my co-founder to be able to start Cubic about two years ago. And the journey has been exciting and I'm really looking forward to telling you more about it. Amazing. In fact, uh, Kiddos, uh, what I'd like to, to, to mention here is that of all the, all the founders that we have spoken to until today, you're the first guy who actually comes with a very solid background in, in innovation as a, as a subject or innovation as a theme. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more uh, where and how did that journey of, of your start, your started and, and some of the interesting work that you may have done in, in that journey before you, you kind of got the aha moment. I mean, how did you start your journey in innovation as a theme? Yeah, so I, so I think it's important to define innovation because it means different things for different people. Um, for, for me, it's always meant doing something different or or trying something in a new way to solve a problem faster or in, in a better way. Um, that has synonymously gone with technology in general, especially digital technology as, as of late. Um, my career has always been in innovation, right? So working at Google, uh, a lot of my work focused around how do we translate all of these amazing products that Google had into over 40 languages and then how do we take that learning and automate that process so that you can translate anything into any language at any point in time? And that's what you know today as Google Translate. And I think a lot of the fundamentals around what it means to innovate came during those early days in my career because there was never an easy way to do anything in my job. Usually we're presented with a very complex problem and we had to take a step back and digest that problem into really small bits and work our way upwards towards making very incremental solutions and seeing that bigger picture of, of a broader solution down the road. And 
On the other side, working at UNICEF posed a different type of innovative solutions, right? It was existing tech such as drones and then starting to think about, well, why is it taking two weeks for a vaccine to be delivered to a community? Or why is it so difficult for us to trace the spread of Ebola in Sierra Leone? And we took this very complex issue, which usually involved things that are really hard to understand because it involves human beings, and incrementally working towards a solution and seeing where technology can play a role and also appreciating where it does not and finding human solutions for those. I think this discipline, I think this experience has really helped me and my team think about this broader and even harder uh, challenge that we all face today around climate change. I think climate change is a very overwhelming word. word. It's a very overwhelming and honestly very daunting thing that seems inevitable to many. And I think by being able to unpack it and see where the problems are and where opportunities lie to make a big dent around it has been a philosophy for us at Cubic and also seeing whether there's a solution that we can play a role in. No, it's a very important point that you that you make when when you started off by by saying innovation means different things for different people. I mean, uh, absolutely. I mean, innovation is not just about technology or product. It could be processes. It could be the way in which business is done. Uh, and and a lot of times it is the incremental innovation that that makes a, a huge difference because when you're talking of solving for for grand challenges or or mass challenges. Uh, I think you're, we are talking of uh, impact in, in huge numbers. And I think the, the needle just needs to, to move a little bit. And the, the impact it has is, is massive. But people don't uh, look at it in, in that way because the understanding of, of innovation is, is, is fairly low or everyone has a different perspective of what innovation is. And, and like you rightly said, I think uh, as an entrepreneur who is who's looking to solve for bigger challenges, I mean, uh, like you said, right? I mean, if you look at climate action, climate change, overwhelming, it, it includes a lot of things and a and lot of incremental changes probably can go a long way in in helping the the environment, the world uh, stay greener and, and safer for a long period of time. But but I think the, the broader understanding of, of innovation or bringing about those incremental changes, I think it's it's a very uh, critical point that you that you make. Uh, having said that, kiddos, jumping in in straight to waste to wealth, what what was your uh, what was your you you mentioned about the aha moment when you started talking about your background, but when when you went about building Cubic, uh, what was the the mission and the vision with which you you started? So I, our mission at Cubic is to build dignity through clean and affordable living for all. Um, this came from various experiences that the team had uh, in their past, and I can speak a little bit to mine. Uh, having traveled to so many of these countries, especially countries that have been through war, uh, that have been through famine, that have been through some form of an outbreak, uh, disease outbreak, you know, you would think 
people in desperation are just looking for a handout. And one of the things I quickly learned is they're not. They always mentioned, um, you know, as I speak to them, that they just want a dignified way of life. And when they really unpack that, it really came down to they want to choose how they live. And they're okay to pay for it if they have access to that capital, right? And it was a very important lesson for me that as a human being, something that connects all of us together is we want that right of choice and a way of life that we have defined for ourselves. And if we have that opportunity, we'll always choose it. So kind of coming to what Cubic does and the challenge that it's, it's solving for, I can put it into a few numbers for you. Um, on the African continent, there's over 60 million tons. So that's 60 billion kilos, if you can imagine what that looks like, of plastic waste that goes unrecycled every single year. It's a very big number. And it doesn't take much but to go out into any city in the continent and see where it actually ends up. At the best case scenario, it ends up in a landfill. At the worst case scenario, it ends up on farmland in the natural environment, actually harming life. And people live in trash in most parts of the world. Um, one of the big wake up calls for me was, you know, getting news in 2018 that a landfill in the city that I grew up in was at overcapacity and actually had a trash avalanche and it killed over a hundred people around it. And as devastating as it was to hear that and as like awestruck that I was that there could be such a thing as a trash avalanche, one of the first things I thought about is what are people doing around that landfill to start off with? And you see, and, and it exposed this thing that exists in many cities. Uh, people look for something to sell from trash. So there's such a thing as waste pickers. In the case of Ethiopia, there's over 10,000 of them. Um, people can't afford to live in some parts of the city. So they find the cheapest place, which end up to be the most harmful areas like a landfill. And that was an eye-opening moment for me that it's not by choice that people are living there. It's just that they can't afford anywhere else. And what can we do about it? Another big number is that on the continent, there's a, there's a minimum gap of 100 million housing units that need to be built in an affordable way for families to live in. So there's basically 100 million families on the continent that don't have access to a decent structure that they deem to be affordable. So we started by saying, look, we're not here to be a charity. We're not here to have a handout for folks. We actually want people to have a dignified way of choosing where they live and what they live in. And if we are able to solve for one piece that can address this, we, we're onto something. And that one thing we decided to start off with is building materials. You need materials to build a house, right? And right now, what people consider to be decent is some form of a cement-based wall. So think of a cinder block or a brick that is made 
with cement. And we saw that to be very expensive. We also saw it to be a very polluting thing. I mean, cement as a country would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. So it's really bad for the environment. We said, well, is there a way that we can take that stuff that people are living around that's really harmful for them that they don't want and that ends up being trash? And can we transform it into a very competitive, high quality product that is half the cost, right? And if we can do that, then we've solved a really, really, really big problem. And we've been able to achieve that at Cubic. We have a, a set of products that you can build a wall with that is at least 50% cheaper than using cement. It is five times less polluting and it's made from the trash around you. So what can be better than that? And it's always felt heartwarming um, seeing people, um, hearing people that see our structures go up for the first time actually try to prove me wrong that this is not made out of plastic and also tell me, wow, so you're telling me that I can clean up my city and also make this thing for on the cheap. And this is the type of uh, experience. It's the type of obsession that we have around product development that has led us here. Kudos. I mean, that's, that's lots that, that you're doing because you're not solving one problem, but you're you're addressing quite a few things. I mean, on on one hand, you're 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 converting the the waste into into something that that can be that can be used. You're improving the quality of life of people who are probably having uh, their homes and their residential around the the waste and the and and the other things which can be detrimental to their health. But at the same time, you're creating a quality product, which is a fraction of the cost that they would actually be spending if they were to have a, a a good solid home to kind of live in but at the same time you're also ensuring that the the, the material is is top quality and it is usable so there are quite a few things i mean even within the broader realm of uh, of climate action uh, or if you were to probably then extend it to the the un sdgs i mean you're you're solving or you're ticking off a lot of those boxes you definitely had the aha moment and even for 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 the the product or the company there would have been a a prototype or an mvp that that you would have hit what was that mvp like when you realized that yes this is really possible for us to do so we were very fortunate that our proof of concept came while we were still at the un on a un salary which is not really a luxury that you know, many founders have, and, and, and we like to recognize that and acknowledge it. I mean, in our case, we did a lot of our product development while we were, you know, trying to make this project work in Cote d'Ivoire. And the moment that we were building these schools, we were seeing these schools take on many different functions outside of just education. They became the community center, they became the place where Various types of awareness campaigns will be held. This is where the elders would meet. And it really posed a question for me of like, why, why there? Why, why not you know, anywhere else or how it's been done before? And 
you know, the consistent feedback was, this is a structure that the community is really proud of and we like to utilize it. Like it's a sense of, it's a source of pride. And when you think about product market fit, right? If your customers really love uh, and take pride in, in calling what they buy like their own, like that is a huge aha moment, right? Um, it means you have a really great product market fit. So, so uh, this is the moment that I also start to say to myself, wow, okay, like we're not just building something that's for schools or for education. We've actually made buildings that are great. Like what is the biggest issue in the world right now when it comes to buildings and it was affordable housing affordable housing is a challenge for almost every city in the world whether you say in san francisco or addis ababa or manila um, and one of the biggest reasons it's a challenge is it is a complex problem that involves access to financing all the way to the cost of building materials that need to be solved for it. Now, like my, my past, a lot of what we do is break out a lot of these complexities and see what is the most useful place to start addressing these problems around. And when we looked at the data, uh, the largest cost driver is materials, almost 40 to 50% of the cost driver is like buying stuff to make a house, right? So we said to ourselves, okay, well, if we can even half that cost, we've put at least a 20 to 25% dent into that problem. So why don't we start there? And there's this magic number of $7,500 a housing unit that you need to get to, 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 to be considered affordable. And, and it got us there, right? Um, being able to slash the cost of materials is good enough to be considered affordable. So we also, as a business, had to understand, well, like, who are we selling this to? Are we selling this to a homeowner? Are we selling this to, like, a municipality? Like, who, who's the customer here? And what we discovered was irrespective of who takes on the initiative to build affordable homes, it comes down to the real estate developer to see the business opportunity to take on that project and build with it. And real estate developers are fascinating creatures, right? Uh, they're very cost sensitive. Uh, they are, or they're very price sensitive. They want speed to be one of the key areas that they that they consider when they take on a project. Um, they don't want anything fancy. The, the more boring the, the product, the better, right? They, they're not there to innovate. And, and again, they, it's, they don't see it as their responsibility to be seen as sustainable, right? They're trying to build you a solid structure and sell it. And the problem with affordable housing is it is such a low price point that the margins that the margins that a real estate developer is working on is very thin and anything such as a shock to the price of cement can really destabilize the project and that's exactly what we saw happen in ethiopia uh, the cost of cement went the price of cement went from 600 ethiopian bir 
to 2,100 per in four months. So just imagine being that poor real estate developer that took on a project five months before that, right? They've basically gone bankrupt. So we said to ourselves, that's our captive market right there. Like those are our clients. If we can prove to them that we have a product that is 50% cheaper, two to three times faster to build with, and it's as safe, it's as strong as what they've used, and it's as boring as what they're used to, they're going to buy it from us. And that's what we're seeing today in, in Ethiopia. Great. Now, with, with that, I mean, building homes, solving for, for this problem is, is a big one. And like you said, right, I mean, in, if you look at the global south, it's affordable housing. Housing is a challenge and affordable housing is a, is a much bigger and a, and a deeper challenge to solve for number one. Number two, uh, if you were to look at uh, generating wealth from waste, I mean, the, the access to waste also is, is not the easiest thing. Because if you look at a business like yours, which has a backward integration and a forward integration to it, it's it's not easy to manage the two because it, it can be like really cumbersome for someone who is building for, for the first time. In such a scenario, how did you access the first part of, of capital which allowed you to, to take the business to life? I mean, was it your own skin in the game? Were you able to kind of access grants or other source of funding which allowed you to actually... Because the in if you were to look at, say, software, if someone was building an app or if someone was was building an IoT product. I think there are different ways to kind of cut costs and, and build the MVP and go and raise venture money or, or angel funding or whatever. But in this case, when you're trying to, to solve for, say, affordable housing, the, pro, the building the prototype itself and to prove out the model that, that it works, it, it requires a little bit of, of capital expenditure to actually go in. How did you, how did you crack the puzzle on that one? So it was really important for us not to see raising capital as the ultimate goal for the success of the business first, right? Like what, what really mattered to us is, are we building a scalable uh, product and a, and a scalable business model? And, you know, full disclosure, right? Uh, we're not the first people turning plastic waste into bricks or, or into building materials. There, there's dime a dozen of them. So, so one of the things that we did is try to understand why they haven't succeeded. And it really came down to, to a few things that you've alluded to. Uh, the first one is uh, trying to be a vertically integrated product. Hardware uh, business is like, you know, good luck scaling. It's really tough. And especially within the line of business that we're in, um, you're not working in one sector, you're working in three. You're working in waste management, you're working in manufacturing, and then you're working in real estate. So we had to say to ourselves, like, which is the part that we're adding value to? And honestly, it was not waste management. There's many recyclers out there. There's a lot of recycling businesses. And it's not real estate. Like, real estate is a very established sector. So when we looked at that product manufacturing area, we saw our value as the technology that we can drive around sustainable and affordable building materials, right? That is what you're investing in. And if there was anything else that can fail, 
and, and, and we're going to be okay with it's, it's the recycling and building part, right? That shouldn't matter to us. What should matter is the product and the technology behind this. So I think once we figured that part out, then the second thing we have to figure out is, well, how are we going to get trash and how are we going to build and who's going to build with our product? So we worked on an incentive scheme. We said to ourselves, we are going to incentivize the waste management sector to sell us a lot of trash at a competitive price at a consistent volume every single day. And they're going to focus on the stuff that nobody is buying from them, right? If, they, if we can do that, we have our, our feedstock. Then on the other hand, as I mentioned before, we're not builders. We are providing materials to those builders. So how do we find that client or, or that captive kind of market segment and, and sell to them? And, and those ended up being real estate developers. So, so I think it was really important to understand the value proposition to whomever's investing, including you know, me as a founder, right? Once that was done, I think the challenge became less about people understanding that this could be a scalable business and product as, as scalable as a software solution can be if you look at the long-term view. And it became more about the grit and rigor of going through that fundraising process, which is not easy at all. It wasn't even easy for me as a person who came from the UN, who's done fundraising before, who had a Rolodex to start with, right? So in our case, our journey started with family and friends, just like many startups do. Um, we were able to get the backing of committed investors, angel investors, who believed in the founders, right? Who believed in me. Uh, as one of our investors said, I'm not, I'm not betting on the horse, I'm betting on the jockey, right? And, and, and that was a, a really eye-opening way of putting it to me. And I think where that put us is at least being able to have that business model, that first market, the value proposition up and running first. Also bringing on a team that is diverse in the skill set to deliver on these type of um, on this type of business. So think about supply chain, think about manufacturing, think about product engineering. Once we did that, we went through a pre-seed. Again, not easy. Finding an institutional investor uh, in hardware, especially hardware in Africa, it was very difficult. But again, having the perseverance, discipline, and grit to talk about your value proposition to as many people as possible, not be defensive on any feedback they give you, but use it as an opportunity to learn on how your business could be better, but also on how you can refine your pitch was the most important thing that I did. And I went through many, many one of those conversations. But as our advisors always told me, said, look, you're not trying to convert anyone. You're trying to find the believers. And finding believers takes time. And that year-long process of talking to, to, to try to find those believers was worth it 
we were able to get some of the most committed institutional investors on our cap table. Think of Plug and Play, think of the Gig Africa Fund, think of Satgana, a bestseller foundation. I mean, these are people that did not need convincing that what we were doing was important. What they wanted to know was that value proposition of the business being able to scale. And we had a lot of practice in refining and explaining that process to them. And I think there's always that snowball effect that comes alongside it of once you have that first institutional investor, they really do help you in getting others on board and, and, and kind of off to the races from there. So, so I would say that's the fundraising journey. We, we've been very fortunate relative to many other founders in this space, but I don't think the difficulty, the grit and kind of the discipline uh, evaded us. We still needed to have that in order to raise the capital that we needed. And no, Kiros, thanks for, for making a lot of points. And actually I'm going to read out some of the the points or the, the items that I that I wrote down. Like like you said, right? I mean venture building or or, or building a startup is, is never about fundraising. It it might be an important milestone in the entire journey, but the, the story here is the is the journey, which is solving problem, the scalability and all of that. So I and I completely agree to to that point that, that you make. But some of the other things that you say, I mean, people back the jockey, not the horse. And and in this case, when you're actually building a company, the jockey is not just the the one individual or the one brain, but it is the collective brain of the of the team that you put together. And I think for for founders who are who are tuning in live or the ones who might hear this on on our Spotify channel, I think uh, it's it's very important to see who who you have on your side, who is supplementing, who is complementing, and and all of that. The third point and, and a critical word that you that you mentioned, consistency. You mentioned consistency in the context of of supply of waste. And as much as one may want to believe that waste after all is is waste, I think the, the biggest challenge that companies like yours have worldwide and, and particularly because they, they operate uh, at, at two ends of the of the business, I think the moment your your supply is affected, your business goes for a toss. How much ever you may, you may have perfected the model, how much ever cost efficient your your output may be, but the input in this case, which is the waste, which is either controlled by the municipality or if it is kind of let out to to private agencies to to collect and monitor and whatnot, if the supply is not consistent, your business goes for a toss, and it's it's very important to. To know, I mean, just like in this context, you you mentioned consistency. Even as a business, whatever you're building, whatever you're doing, I think having that element of consistency goes a long way in the in the longevity of the of the business of the company that you're building. Uh, the other point that you make, which is around, uh, even if you're not the first one to to hit the road, as long as you have a, a strong and a compelling kind of a value proposition, and you're able to find your believers, it's okay. The markets are are big enough. And there are opportunities for many to play because one of the biggest hurdles that that a lot of entrepreneurs face is that you're always going to find those naysayers. Like if you go and pitch it to someone, they may not even be right up there to to cut your check, but to just turn you down, they might say, "Okay, there are so many other people doing this. So what makes you different?" It's it's okay. I mean, the the markets are big enough, and even if there is competition, as long as you you know that you have a differentiator and you have a solid value proposition. I mean, go for the jugular, uh, and and the last one that you that you mentioned about, which is the iteration. I mean, businesses evolve. I mean, from the first version of the product that is 
put out there and as and when you keep discovering your your customer the customer kind of gives feedback it it kind of goes into a loop of sorts and and that cycle of iteration never stops uh in in some cases it has got to do with the material or the product itself in some cases the business model but i think businesses need to kind of be open to iteration and and making that that evolution and and that's why venture building is a journey and it's it's not just a pit stop it's it's a it's a it's a journey of sorts so so thank you so much for for making those those wonderful comments kiddos because i'm sure that lot of entrepreneurs whether they are in in similar business to yours or not i think they will relate to a lot of things and the application is is across product services impact businesses and and what not so coming to to one of the points that you mentioned around the team what does your team look like uh, what what does the composition look like from a leadership or the founding team perspective and also top down what is the kind of uh, soldiers that you have at your at your disposal um well well first off i i have a team where for any given topic i'm probably the least smartest in the room and that's by design and it's something that i'm really proud of um i'm probably also the the relatively least committed or dedicated in that room i have a team of extremely committed hard working very smart people that 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 work in their respective areas um my tree my team is my management team is proudly african when i say african i mean those who have lived and understand the context of the business that we're trying to drive scale towards um half of them are women uh actually most of the technical roles are led by women like our engineering team our supply chain team something that i'm really proud of and this is a team that joined cubic not because it's a cool startup or because it pays better but because it shares a conviction that they personally have as well and that has been a really important driver for cubic's journey because as most of you know on this call startup life is a roller coaster there will be four times in the day that you would think you're going to be a unicorn and four times in that same day where you think you're going to fail and crash and burn like it is an emotional roller coaster especially in those early days and i think what has helped us stay focused and continue to plow through those rough patches is sharing conviction because there are hard conversations to have there are many disagreements that take place but we do share a common goal for the future and and that helps us persevere the type of people that generally work at cubic as well do share this grit of solving problems Ajay you brought up a really great point for example in the supply chain right um like so many things can go wrong when when you're sourcing for your feedstock what's made me really proud is you know our supply chain team is not made of you know logisticians and scientists around supply chain it's actually people who've worked with waste collectors as people who've worked in landfills 
it is people who like our like our supply chain lead Haimanut, who have worked with some of the most reputable companies like PepsiCo and led their supply chain efforts in the country and understand what it takes to build not only a strong supply chain network, but also de-risk it from shocks, right? But at the end of the day, they solve problems and that's what excites them. And in an environment and in a business that requires a lot of problem solving on a day-to-day basis, um, having people who are actually yearning for it is, is, is rare sometimes. And, and I'm really proud to say that that exists at Cubic today. Great. Thanks. Thanks for articulating all of that and also kind of picking up points from some of the comments comments that I made. Uh, so your your business, I, I was reading up uh, the markets that you're present in. You're, you're currently in, in Kenya and, and Ethiopia. Are Do you see the, the, the different markets within the continent or probably even within East Africa to be different than, than one another? What are, what are some of the things that you need to be... Uh, aware of or cognizant of when you're looking at, at different markets within the continent? How easy or difficult is it for you to expand or extend your services, extend the, the company into a new market within Africa? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important question. Um, I mean, especially prior to Cubic, um, I used to scream and yell that Africa is not a country, right? Um, it's every country is different. And even within a country, you know, different regions of that country or cities are different in the way that they work and 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 operate. So starting with that appreciation is all, starting off with appreciating that has been really important. Now, in our case, keeping the context of the problem very foundational was important, right? What are we solving for? We're solving for removing for, for the mounting amount of hard to recycle plastics. So the question is, where does that exist and at what volume and, and you know, who's collecting it right now and who could be collecting it in the future? It's, we're solving for the affordable housing crisis that many of these countries and cities see. So the question becomes, who are the developers who work on this? What incentivizes them? What do they need to see? And it's the general business environment of, of operating in any market, right? What incentives exist for us? Is this going to be a headwind or a tailwind for, for us to set up as a manufacturing entity? What does that regulatory environment look like? I think being honest with yourself and answering those type of questions lead you to several things, right? It, it leads you to understanding what your largest cost drivers will look like and, and how risky taking a stake on those are going to be. It also illustrates to you of what the revenue potential is in, in that country and the potential for it to scale and grow. And of course, it also explains to you a bit around, you know, how quickly can I set up and is this going to be sustainable for me as a business in the future as well? Now, comparing Kenya and Ethiopia, it's like night and day. Right, but the problems and the foundational problems are still the same. Uh, like there's a lot of plastic, 
right? Even though Kenya is a country that has banned single-use plastic, it still exists. Uh, affordable housing is a priority for cities, uh, and it will continue to be because that gap is continuing to grow. But the type of real estate developers are different. So it's a matter of understanding them of how, and how to work with them. So to your question, is it easy to just have a kind of blind plug and play model from one country to another? No, and, and, and the business would fail if you did that. But there are smart ways to think about these problems and the value add and opportunities that can exist for your business in these markets that can drive you to a decision of whether it makes sense to work with them or not and how you need to adapt your business model in these different places um, as you think of and, and decide to enter. No, thank you. I, I think it's, it's very important. Uh, most of our, our listeners uh, tuning in live or, or listening to this in the, in the Spotify channel that we host this on, uh, most of them are, are African entrepreneurs. And as much as it might be desirable to, to think of building a company which is capable of expanding regionally or it can be pan-African, I think it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy because like you rightly pointed out, right? I mean, even within one country, different regions could, could exhibit different uh, consumer behavior. And it's not, it's not uh, easy to replicate or, or do a copy-paste of, of something like this. And, and particularly the kind of business that you're in, uh, where, where it's, a, it's not a software, where it's not an app, uh, but, but in, it involves integrating or bringing together a lot of things. I mean, supply chain is at the core. Uh, but around that, there is there's a lot of other things that also from a business model or from an operation standpoint needs to kind of be be set up before you actually can can go live. So I think it's uh, you're solving a complex problem and the business itself is is not something that can be just replicated overnight. So thanks. Thanks for articulating that. You guys have raised over, over close to four million dollars uh, from from publicly available kind of uh, figures. Uh, what is your your journey been with you did talk about the fundraising journey you did talk about how uh, some of the folks who are there on your cap table uh, the kind of role that that they have played i'll not ask you about your your journey of fundraising because i've already spoken about it but when it comes to businesses which are in the in the broader impact space if we can call yours to be one when they're looking at raising money what are some of the things that they need to be aware of cognizant of rather than just looking at the dollars hitting the bank account what are some of the things that businesses like yours need to be aware of when they're on the road to raise capital? Yeah, no, a very important question and, and something that founders need to be very aware of. Um, I would say in the first two to three weeks of starting Cubic, um, as you can imagine, it was scary. Uh, I was very vulnerable, very insecure. Um, anyone who tells you that they weren't when they started their venture is probably lying, in my opinion. It was very scary. Um, I was very fortunate to have friends, uh, mentors that have been through that journey before and, and you know, just talking to them helped, right? And I used to always write down these different quotes or these different nuggets that they would, that they would say and you know, kind of stick it to the wall just so that I can kind of stare at it when, you know, when I needed to. Um, one that used to stand out a lot was uh, what one of my really good friends said to me. He said, um, 
it's really easy to raise money from an investor. So it's really easy to bring on an investor. It's really, really difficult to get rid of them. Choose your investor. Don't let the investor choose you, right? And it didn't really make sense during that, that you know, first month because, again, I was just trying to raise money and make this thing work, right? And, and, and that's kind of the general feeling that early stage founders have. But it kind of dawned on me about a year in when I started to notice through conversations with fellow founders of the misery that they would be going through with an investor uh, who's trying to, you know, change the strategy of the business that they had because they're trying to make certain returns or they're trying to, you know, have a different direction that suited their interests versus the interests of the business. And, and, and these were businesses that were impact focused, right? And I was having an opposite uh, kind of experience. I had investors who were part-time therapists who were very comfortable to hear that patience will be required for growth, uh, who actually would press me on what we're doing around growing our impact metrics, right? And I feel that happened because even though it took us a long, relatively longer time to raise, we were very stubborn about also interviewing the investor themselves. We wanted to understand their uh, thesis. We wanted to understand what they stood for. We wanted to understand um, what type of supports they provide to their portfolio companies. And, and once we're kind of at a very advanced due diligence stage, we would actually also ask them if we can talk to one or two of, uh, of their founders within their portfolio company, just to understand their experience as well. That really helped us because the type of investors that we've had are aligned with our vision as a business, but also aligned on our mission on bringing both environmental and social impact globally. Um, so, so if there's one thing that I would say to your audience is choose your investors. Like it, it sounds like an improbable thing to do because you are trying to raise capital, but trust me, from what I hear, getting rid of them is going to be 10 times harder if you're not aligned. No, it's, it's, it's a very important point and comment that, that you make, Kiddos, because investors receive thousands of, of pitch decks and they pick and choose the companies that they want to write the, the check to because it's not about how good your, your pitch deck is and, and the point that you made. Uh, they bet on the on the jockey, not the horse. Uh, so similarly, when when a startup is or a founder is looking to raise raise money, uh, he or she should also kind of uh, exercise uh, a level of of due diligence in terms of whom they they accept the the investment from. Yes, you need to to meet and talk to a whole bunch of investors, but you also need to be crystal clear in your mind as to who you want on your cap table because it's it's a long term relationship. Uh, let's not look at it just as a as a transaction where you're getting money from someone for you to build your dreams or build your venture. But it's a, it's a long-term relationship. And beyond money, 
i think investors have a very critical role to play i mean whether it is uh, breaking open some doors for you whether it is uh, helping you kind of set those processes whether from a governance standpoint or whatever it is uh, being able to add value to your business in in one way or the other they may not be able to to add value to you operationally on a daily basis but someone who is strategic someone who understands uh, at least one aspect of your business and and that's why it's it's a it's a long term thing and for for founders who are looking to raise money i think it's it's very important that uh, they they give a lot of uh, attention to whom they are they are raising capital from and uh, why they are raising from particular kind of investors so yeah i mean point point well taken so kiddos what's next i mean we are closer to the the hour of this chat and while it has been interesting and and engrossing uh, getting your perspective on why what your why has been and and how you are kind of going about solving it what's next for uh, for cubic as a as a company where do you see going next and what are some of the milestones that you're looking to hit over the next few quarters it's it's an exciting time at cubic right now um as you might see from social media we've we've received a lot of great recognition um there's there's a, a good social tailwind right uh which we do our best not to blind us from the actual work at hand which is to make these incredible products and deliver it to low income communities in Ethiopia at the moment um the next few quarters are going to be focused a lot on proving out that scalability within that first market in Ethiopia it's going to be starting to put a pulse on new markets and what strategy we need to apply to enter them but there's also this part that really excites me um which is really around our kind of product engineering and and innovation right um we took on this approach of uh listening to our clients and then thinking about what we build next and our real estate development partners are just an an open book of comments and feedback on what they would like to see and and we were taking stock so i'm really excited about that that team that we're going to be building around uh, uh around what will bring to the market next i'm also excited about how we can get into more scientific collaborations with institutions around taking on even harder to recycle trash and finding ways of of incorporating them into into our uh into our product pipeline. So so a lot of really cool work ahead. Um it's slightly scary and it should be that way because if it is not scary maybe it's not worth doing it or someone has already. Uh but we we are pushing the needle both on how we grow in Ethiopia and beyond. but also how we evolve the business to to find different areas that we can add value to amazing no uh, kiddos it has been wonderful uh, chatting with you and waste to wealth is solving the waste is a is a great problem uh, but at the same time you're you're enabling uh, people have better infrastructure whether it is for homes whether it is schools whether it is hospitals and and like you said right i mean when you go to to the non metropolitan or the non big cities whichever continent you are in 
i think a lot of these uh, spaces they they end up becoming kind of uh, multi use or mixed use kind of uh, facilities i mean uh they they could dub, double up as a place of worship it could be a place of of studying it could be a community center and and what not so uh, having that element of of durability to to something that you're building uh is is also kind of critical so you're you're solving multiple challenges you're getting getting the waste uh helping people to kind of breathe from breathe the air and the environment which is safe to them but at the same time you're giving them those safe spaces as well so more power to you and cubic to to impact lives of several millions in in africa as a continent but i think uh, like you said right i mean this is not just a, a city or a country specific problem that you're solving it it is it is scalable and it is massively scalable so more power to you uh, we'll just open up the floor maybe for a question or two if anyone has has one have it up uh, wonderful chatting with you and like i said more power to to the work that you're doing and for our listeners uh, founders 52 is there uh, every wednesday night 9 pm uh, east africa time uh, we bring one wonderful solid founder let's just like we had kidus today to talk about what their journey has been and founders 52 is all about inspiring the next generation of entrepreneurs in in africa who are building in africa for africa and uh, as hindsight ventures this is our way of giving back to the the entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem and uh, enable more people to to start up so that we can help you in your journey moving forward thank you so much for being a wonderful audience uh, signing off and 